The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our service of Berean Baptist Church. I'd like you to open your Bibles now, if you would, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. And today we resume our study of the New Testament church. The message that I want to bring this morning is a bit unusual because I don't often get technical in Sunday morning sermons. Keeping sermons low-key and away from doctrinal dissertations, that wasn't always the way that uh, preachers would preach on Sunday mornings, though we have kind of resorted to that. Many have in these past uh, decades have made preaching services much simpler than they used to be. And we wonder sometimes, why do we do that? I mean, the church service is for the church, and uh, why should we concern ourselves with whether uh, you listen, have to listen closely to understand. If you attended churches three to four hundred years ago, then you would hear Puritans, like Puritans in England, uh, preaching from texts that were difficult and weren't simple sermons, but were very often sermons that you would think were prepared for seminarians almost. I encourage you sometime, if you have uh, the time to do it, to do some reading of the Puritan writings and sermons that they preached and you'll get a really highly exalted view of our Lord Jesus Christ. What we want to do when we preach the Word of God, as best we can, is to give you mature doctrine. We want you to grow in your sanctification and your relationship with the Lord. And we don't want to have to say, as Paul did to the Corinthian church, that I wish that I could give you the meat of the Word, but I'm not able to do that because you are as children, and so I must feed you with milk. Well, without hesitation, I can say that the doctrine of the church is one of the most critical of all New Testament doctrines. In fact, when you first heard the gospel, it was available to you because of the church that Christ began in his personal ministry almost around 2,000 years ago. Our Lord commissioned the apostles with the gospel. They preached it across the Roman Empire, and they established churches wherever they went. And these new churches became the guardians of the gospel, and these people were charged with sending out missionaries to other places, and they, in turn, would begin new churches. That is God's program for keeping the gospel alive. It is perpetuated through the New Testament church, the establishment of new churches in every generation. And so if you have heard the gospel and believed it, it's because of the church. The gospel message has survived all of these centuries because of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me add to that, that if you are a baptized Christian, then you have a connection with the New Testament church because only the true church is authorized to baptize. Baptism is a part of the commission. It is your public identification with Jesus Christ, and it is the door that you access membership to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then let me also add this, that the New Testament knows nothing of unbaptized believers and believers who aren't associated with New Testament churches. 
The gospel was preached in the first church at Jerusalem. And so from there, there is a history of Christian churches throughout the centuries. The book of Acts is about the establishment of churches. The New Testament epistles were written to churches, and those that weren't written specifically to a church body were written to individuals about the church, things for the church. And so everything that we read in the New Testament has the doctrine of the church at its center. And this is a really a good reason, a main reason that we need to know about it. Now today I want to give you some more information to help your understanding of what the church is and what the New Testament speaks of when it speaks of the church. And I also want you to know that when you come here to assemble with God's people and you hear the word of God being preached, then you are obeying the Lord's command for his work through the church. This is what you should do as a believer in Jesus Christ. Now, our text today is Matthew sixteen eighteen, and if you haven't already found that, I know you are familiar with it. Jesus said to Peter, And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is the first mention of the church in the New Testament. This is Jesus' promise that he would establish his church. And though the church would be assailed by Satan and his demons, though it would be attacked by people under Satan's influences, and though the forces of evil would always be relentless against it, still the church would not fail. And the church will not fail because it is the means of preaching the gospel of Christ and reaching those that God has chosen for his salvation. We can expect that we would find the church in all of the centuries since the time of Jesus Christ. We expect it because the New Testament promises it. And we expect to find churches that are connected to the New Testament model that we have in the scriptures and to the living head who is Jesus Christ. Well, there are many, many churches that claim to be true churches, but the true church is verified by certain characteristics. The church must be made out of the right material, which are those that are born again, baptized disciples. It must continue in the apostles' doctrine and then again be connected to that living head who is Jesus Christ. And that connection to him is a perpetual connection. It's an organic connection to that very first church that Jesus began and it was promised that it would prevail in all ages. Now, the connection to that first church also entails some doctrinal absolutes, which we will discuss as we go through this study. And so it is important that if you want to be a part of a New Testament church, that you examine what the church believes that you attend and whether it is under the authority of the New Testament head by virtue of this organic connection that it has to the first church. Now, our subject again today is the nature of the church. And today's sermon may be more technical than usual, but as I look over our congregation, most of you are longtime Christians, and so I think it's good for you to, to feast on the meat of God's Word, and this might be a, a good time for you to take some notes. What exactly is the church? Well, that's a necessary and appropriate question, and there are plenty of wrong answers. There are many ideas of what the church is, 
And as our first exercise today, we want to examine the usage of the word church. They're both New Testament usages. There are common everyday usages that we speak of it in our, as I say, common speech. So what are the uses of the word church? The problem with identifying the nature of the church is that there is no theory of its nature in, 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 in the scriptures that adequately explains all the terms in the Bible for it. Buell Kazee makes this statement in his uh, introduction to the book, The Church and the Ordinances. He says, it is certain there is a church. The questions which arise about it seem to demand a plausible and scriptural answer. Is it local and visible or general and invisible? Can it be both at the same time? If there be two churches, both local and universal, both visible and invisible, does it not follow that one must be in constant confusion, trying to adapt oneself to the obligations and activities of both? If the church and the ordinances belong together, would not the existence of an invisible church in some way affect the visibleness of the ordinances? What about the church and the family of God? What about the relationship of the Holy Spirit to the church as compared to his relation to the individual believer? Does every believer belong to the church? These and many other difficult questions arise as one studies the scriptural interpretation of the church. I read that comment because I want you to see that church doctrine is part of the cerebral study of the scriptures. This is a difficult and argued doctrine. And if you care about understanding the Bible, this is what you need to hear. But if you don't, then perhaps it won't interest you at all what I have to say today. There are very difficult differences of opinion about the church. And what this does is to lead most Christians to accept what they hear without investigating what they hear, without verifying the truth, it's so difficult that they don't want to think about it. So you tell me what you think of the church. That's, that's okay with me. We want to know what God says about it. We, we want to be sanctified by God's truth. So we start with the way that the word is used. The first way that we use the word church is what we would call the historical sense, the historical use of it. And the historical use of the word covers the whole range of activity of the church throughout the past 2,000 years. This is a generic use of the word. and In other words, we don't refer to one particular church or any distinct church or denomination. And we may not speak of true churches only when we use the word this way, but it also may include false church movements that have happened over these past 20 centuries of the church's history. And so you'll often hear me speak of the church in that way. I may use it in the generic sense, but in no way does that imply that a false church is a church in any sense. So I might mention that there is a Mormon church right down the street, but my use of the word church to describe them does not mean that they are a form of the church, that they are an aberrant form of the church, or they're any form of the church as described in the New Testament. And so the historical use of the word would include any group that is true, 
or any group that pretends to be true to New Testament doctrine. So what we must do with all of these organizations, including the Berean Baptist Church, is to look at the doctrinal claims. We must investigate that to see if it matches the Word of God. Now, secondly, there is the denominational use of the word. The denominational use is when we take all of churches that adhere to a specific core set of doctrines, and then we lump them together. So then when I say the Roman Catholic Church, I'm not referring to St. Elizabeth Ann Seton down on Snyder Lane, but rather I would be referring to all Roman Catholic churches across this world. The same is true when we speak of the Presbyterian Church. There's a certain set of doctrines that they believe. There's the Methodist Church, and that's a denomination with certain doctrines they believe, or the Assemblies of God, any that we want to mention. And so when we mention the church in that way, we're not referring to uh, a single church, but to a whole association of churches that hold to a common doctrine. Many people refer to the Baptist Church this way, but strictly speaking, we only refer to ourselves as Baptist churches because Baptists do not accept denominationalism. Now, the third use of the word is the institutional use. And the institutional use is also referred to as the abstract, or it is a generic use of the term. And it refers to the church as an institution in society. This is the way that the word is used in our text in Matthew 16, 18. Jesus said he would build his church. Well, he wasn't talking about a particular church like the one is at Jerusalem. He just meant the church as an institution. If you don't understand how that institutional use works, then I might compare it this way, that we have an abstract use of terms demonstrated by passages such as Ephesians 5. And this is where Paul speaks of the husband and the wife. In Ephesians 5, verse 23, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Well, we read that, and we know that Paul is not speaking of a particular husband and a wife, and so he didn't mean Peter and his wife. And yes, if Peter was the first pope, which he wasn't, he had a wife. So we use these terms generically when we say, the husband and the wife in the sense of Ephesians 5.23, we're speaking of that as the institution of marriage. So we're talking about two people, one that makes up a marriage, the husband and the wife. And those terms don't become concrete until we refer to a particular marriage. So we'd be using marriage in an institutional form. So when we get particular, we say things like, well, Jorge over there is the husband of the wife, Mina. Now we're talking about a specific marriage, a specific home. And that term then becomes concrete. Well, the other usage, just the husband and the wife, speaking of marriage as an institution, is the same way that we find the church is used in Matthew 16, 18. Jesus was referring to the church as an institution. Now, the fourth usage of the word is the local visible use. And this is by far the most common usage in the New Testament. In fact, the the meaning of church, this meaning is conspicuous because of the frequency of its usage. When the Bible says the church at Ephesus 
or the church at Antioch, or the church at Rome. It's referring to a congregation of believers in those cities that assembled to worship and to do the work of the Lord. The local visible sense means that the church is concrete, that it is the entire church, the extent of it, that can meet physically in one place. For example... Acts chapter 13, verse 1. Here the scripture says, Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas and Simeon that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene and Menaean, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. Now notice there it says the church that was at Antioch. So it's referring to uh, uh, an assembly of believers in the city of Antioch. And here we find a listing of the names of the preachers and teachers of that church. And so if we were to read the scriptures this way, now there were in the assembly that was at Antioch, well, then we would be dead on with the meaning of the word church because the most essential part of this word, the meaning is assembly. In the Greek New Testament, this word is ekklesia, But English translations do not translate ecclesia, but rather they substitute the English word church. Now I want you to notice these verses in the King James. In Acts 19 verse 32, Some therefore cried one thing and some another for the assembly, and the word assembly there is ecclesia, for the assembly was confused, and the more part knew not where they Wherefore, they were come together. Acts 19.39, But if ye inquire anything concerning other matters, it shall be determined in a lawful assembly. Acts 19.41, And when he had thus spoken, he dismissed the assembly. Now there in verses 32, 39, and 41, the King James translators did not translate the word ecclesia as church, But they used assembly because it was evident that those that were gathered were not a church. That wasn't the purpose of that assembly. So why is that important to us? Well, it's important because it establishes what people in New Testament times understood when they heard the word ecclesia. Ecclesia is a gathering of people. These are people that physically meet together. Assembling, physically meeting in one place is essential to the meaning of the word ecclesia. And so when the word church is substituted for ecclesia, then we know that the gathering is a specific type of a gathering. It is a gathering of Christian people gathered to and are commissioned to do the Lord's work. So the primary usage of the word church in the New Testament has this meaning. Now in a few minutes I want to show you why that is so important to understanding what the New Testament means when the church is used for ecclesia rather than assembly. Now, number five is the invisible use of the word. The invisible use, and you might might want to make a note of this, the invisible use of this word is post-apostolic. It stands opposed to the meaning of the Greek word ekklesia. The, The invisible use says that the church may exist in a spiritual sense. That whether it is assembled or unassembled, that all Christians are part of this mystical body that is called the church. And nobody really knows what this mystical body is because the New Testament doesn't describe it. The concept of invisible church is a necessary invention for those who have no part of the visible church. 
Well, we're going to tackle this theory of the church in just a few minutes and show you why it's not the meaning of the word. And then the institutional use of the word also stands opposed to using this word in an invisible sense. Now, our sixth usage of the word is the eschatological use. This is the most interesting one that I think uh, because it refers to the church in glory. This is not the church in existence today, but it's the church in prospect. When the entire church is taken out of the world, then there is a gathering in heaven of all the redeemed. We see this in Hebrews 12, verse 23. But ye are coming to Mount Sion, unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. Now, even in this usage of the word, we can see a physical assembly. I don't know how you can have an unassembled assembly, and yet that's the idea that most people have of the church. So these are the ways that church is used. Some of these usages are okay, some are not. And then there's one more usage I didn't note for you, and we don't really need to spend much time on this, and that is that everyone calls this building in which we meet the church. But any Bible student understands that we use the word that way to as the place that houses the meeting of the church, the physical assembly of the church. And in that way, the usage of the word in that way also also reinforces the original Greek meaning of ecclesia. Now, going just a little bit further then, we look at the meaning of church. What is the church? And I've read many definitions for it. And I think the one that best describes it is the one that we give in our statement of faith. But our statement of faith, I think, is, is much more involved and broader in scope than what I want to look at today. So instead of using that, I want to use Edward Hiscox's definition from the New Directory for Baptist Churches. And let me just add this uh, to, to my comments, that everything that I've told you in, in these past few minutes are not things that I have invented. Uh, the, this is historical doctrine that's been held to since New Testament times. This has been held for centuries. This is what Hiscox, uh, who is late 19th century, this is what he wrote. A Christian church is a company of regenerate persons baptized on a profession of faith in Christ, united in covenant for worship, instruction, the observance of Christian ordinances, and for such service as the gospel requires recognizing and accepting Christ as their supreme Lord and lawgiver and taking his word as their only and sufficient rule of faith and practice in all matters of conscience and religion. And I think this definition highlights, especially as it refers to the assembly of persons that have covenanted together to observe Christian ordinances, that highlights the Greek word ekklesia, the meaning of it. And, and by the way, we, we would mention the ordinances that are, that are listed here uh, as one criteria that an invisible church cannot observe ordinances. How then did we get the word church? The Greek doesn't translate the word church. Uh, ekklesia, rather, is, is not a church, is not the uh, actual meaning of the word uh, that's translated as assembly. Assembly is how it should be translated. But in our English translations, we have this word church. The translators don't translate ecclesia. We get the word church instead. 
So what is the origin of the word? So let's look at that. The derivation of church. We don't know for sure where the English word church came from. This is what Hiscock says. The word church is of uncertain derivation. English, church, Scottish, Kirk, Anglo-Saxon, Syriac, German, Kersher, Danish, Kirk, Swedish, Kirka, Russian, Zerkal. It's used as the equivalent, if not derived from the Hebrew Kahal, Latin Curia, and has usually been derived from the Greek Kuriakon, which means belonging to the Lord. This, however, is disputed by good authority. But ekklesia is the accepted equivalent Greek word used in the New Testament and translated church. So although we don't know the complete etymology of the English word, we do know that, of course, that it's substituted for the Greek word ekklesia. So then the most important way to determine what church means is to understand what did the Greeks mean when they said Ecclesia. What did people hear? What did they understand when they heard this Greek word in the New Testament? Well, let's take just a moment then to look at the Greek word. So next is the definition of ecclesia. What is the definition of it? Well, ecclesia is a compound word. It's uh, two words, ek, which means from and or out of. And then the second part of the word is kaleo, which means to call. And so the word means to call out from. This is the place where many people stop and they say that ecclesia simply means those that are called out or those that are separated from another company. And Christians certainly are called out, aren't we? We're called out. We're called out to be separate from the world. We're called out by God to be a peculiar people that are zealous of good works. Although we are in the world, we're not of the world. So certainly we're called out and we're separated. But the word doesn't mean just to call out. It means to call out for a purpose. It's to call out for an assembly. And we saw that just a moment ago in Acts chapter 19 when the King James translators correctly used the word assembly instead of the word church for ecclesia. And so this is the way that the apostles would have understood Jesus when he said that I will build my church, when I will build my ecclesia. They understood the Greek word. T.P. Simmons writes, It is rationally unreasonable to assume that Christ and the apostles took up a Greek word that had a well-established meaning and gave to it another meaning without one word of explanation. Consequently, we find that in every passage in the New Testament where ecclesia occurs, it can be taken in the true sense of assembly. There is not a passage that demands a broader sense. Now that's very important because the idea that the church is in any sense invisible as universal invisible theory states is to give the word a meaning that was new to that time and left unexplained in the New Testament. So how would the writers of the New Testament expect anybody to understand the meaning if no one had been told that the common everyday usage of the word had been changed and shifted to mean something else? And that shift is not New Testament. It's post-New Testament. The word denotes an assembly of persons, of people. There are people that are physically, that get together in a real place, they see each other, they touch each other, and they talk with each other, and they work with each other. 
That is so important to understand so that you don't think, well, I don't need to be an assembly of God's people because I'm a member of the big church in the sky. The big church in the sky. Even when Jesus used the word in an institutional sense in Matthew 16, 18, he followed that up in Matthew chapter 18 with, with instructions about discipline. This is what he said in these two verses. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. Now, it would be extremely difficult to take a matter to the church if the church is a mystical, unassembled assembly. So to understand what Jesus meant by church, we must strongly consider the use of this word ecclesia by the Greeks. And so to wrench out a meaning that's foreign to anyone's understanding of the word just doesn't make sense. Now, to show you further that the New Testament must be talking about a local visible assembly such as we have here today, instead of a universal, invisible, unassembled non-entity, then we have examples of how the word is used. We, we have examples, metaphors for the church, metaphors for the meaning of the church. The scripture uses figurative language to help us to understand the meaning of church. The figurative is always based in the truth of the literal. And if we ever get that turned around to think that the truth is based on the figurative, then we're going to be in trouble. And so there are three metaphors that are used for the church in the scriptures, and they help us to see the visible nature of the church so that we clearly understand that what God expects from us is to be in the assembly of God's people, that we don't neglect this, that we come here to hear the word of God and fellowship with one another. So how does the, the New Testament explain this to it? Well, it used metaphors. And the first metaphor is the church as a body. The church is a body. We often hear this. The church is the body of Christ, and that, folks, is language taken directly from the Scriptures. And this shows that the church must have a corporeal existence. Corporeal means that it has material, that it's physical substance, as opposed to imaginary or spiritual. Now, it's interesting that when Jesus was raised from the dead... He, he appeared to his disciples and he talked about his body. And he said, Behold my hands and my feet, that is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have. That's Luke twenty four thirty nine. Jesus talks about his body. But yet when it comes to the metaphor of the body of Christ that is the church, most people don't find their reality in the literal. Instead, they switch to something that is spiritual, and that can't be indicative of a true body. In 1 Corinthians 12, the church as a visible body is glaringly apparent. Now, I'd like you to turn to 1 Corinthians 12, and you can just sort of peruse this passage as I speak. We don't have time to read it all, but I want you to notice some key parts. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. In the 27th verse, 1 Corinthians 12, Now ye are the body of Christ and members, 
in particular. Now keep that thought in mind. We are all members in particular of the body. Now in the preceding verses, Paul uh, compares the members of the body to hands and, and feet and ears and noses. We're not all the same in the body. We're referred to as different parts because God needs a variety of works in the church and those works couldn't be done if we were all exactly the same. A body is a unified whole. We have a relationship with each other. A body is interconnected. I see what you're doing. You can see what I'm doing. You recognize when the church has a need and you may be available to fill that need. I see it the same way. Then notice what Paul says in verse number 26. And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. Or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. Well, how would it be possible for us to suffer with other members of the body if we're talking about a body that's scattered all over the whole world in disassembled pieces? If you went out today and you found an arm in the parking lot, would you look at that and say, hey, everybody, come and see, I found a body. No, you would say, where's the rest of the body? There's just an arm laying here. Where is the body? We, we can't feel the pain of people that we've never met. We can't help somebody if we don't know who they are. We can't rejoice with those that we don't know about. And so it's impossible to find unity without a body that can assemble. How could we ever come together to, or how could we discuss our differences and arrive at scriptural conclusions if we don't come together to discuss them? And have you noticed this, how much diversity there is in interpretation of the scriptures among many, many groups that claim Christianity? We agree that many of them are Christians, but where's the unity of the body when we disagree about baptism, we disagree about the Lord's Supper, we disagree about church polity, we disagree about church membership, we disagree about many, many multitudes of issues. How can we say that that is a body together? Now, you see, the analogy of a body doesn't hold up if the church is invisible or universal in scope. There is no human body that works at cross-purposes, such as we see going on in those who think there is this mystical body. Now, look, look at also at verse number 28. And God hath set some in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, After that, miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, governments, diversities of tongues. Paul also wrote in Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, And he gave some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Does that sound like a big mess of unassembled parts that can't possibly work together? Who does the work of ministry? Who's edified by pastors and teachers? It's the body, the church. It's a church that's working together in perfect harmony. And this is one of the reasons that you are here together, because we are agreed and we are in harmony. Now, the scriptures come out, the scriptures come out of, a, of an apostolic letter that most believe is the place that you can find the universal church. I mean, if you are a proponent of universal invisible church theory, the book of Ephesians is usually the place that you would go. Well, we can find this. We can find the institutional church in Ephesians, but there is no universal invisible church in these passages. So this metaphor of the body, the most common one used in the scriptures for the church, the most common one, has no means of extracting a non-assembled church. An invisible body is nonsensical. 
The next, the next metaphor is the church as a building. And this metaphor is just as easy to see. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 9, For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry. Ye are God's building. Peter wrote, Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. If I use the word building, what do you think of? As a, as a young man, uh, before I became preacher, I was, I was, um, used to build some houses. And, um, first thing I would do would be to assemble the materials for the building. Now, if you go to Home Depot, in one place, in, in one aisle, you, you'll find a stack of two-by-fours that you build, use as studs in the wall. That is, if you can afford them. You can buy the studs. In another place, in another aisle, you find a stack of number two yellow pine that you would use for floor joist. Then you go to another aisle and there's sheathing that you could use on the roof or you might use for the floor. And then another aisle has carpet, then another has light fixtures, and another there's doors and windows, and still another there are appliances, and still another there's the electrical and the plumbing sections. So who says to anyone, I want you to come with me to Home Depot and I want to show you my house. And you take them to Home Depot and you show them all the aisles in the store and all the different parts and you say, here's my house, here is my building. No, when we think of a building, we don't think of a lumberyard. We think of the structure. All the pieces are put together in one place so that you see the whole structure. So how could you get that same picture from piles of lumber and building materials that never are assembled? And so when Paul said that you are God's building, he couldn't have meant anything other than the church that was assembled there at Corinth that he was writing to. So how, how could he say, you are God's building, I just wish that I could see you all because you're scattered from Greece all the way to Jerusalem. A universal, invisible church makes no sense when you compare it to a building. It must be local and visible and assembled. Then thirdly, in the New Testament, we find this usage, the church as a bride. It might surprise you, but you can't find these exact words in Scripture. The church is the bride of Christ. But by putting together different texts concerning the church, we see it compared this way as the bride of Christ. Now there is considerable amount of debate about who is and who is not in the bride of Christ. I'm not going to go into that now. But I will say that in the strictest sense that I don't think the church can be the bride of Christ until it's glorified and perfected. And so this means the church perfected will most certainly be the bride in heaven. Now in Revelation 19 verse 7 there's a scene in heaven in which we're told about the bride. Revelation 19 says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. So it appears to me that the church in prospect, glorified, arrayed in righteousness, clean and white in heaven, this is the bride. Well, what can we conclude about the nature of the church from this? Well, I think we can see once again that ecclesia is people that are gathered. They are together in heaven and they make up the bride of Christ. 
They're not invisible. They're not scattered. They're in one place that God promised they all would be. So the metaphor of a bride cannot work with the universal invisible church. But as you know, the existence of a universal invisible church is widely accepted and it's hardly ever challenged. That is not true throughout church history. Protestantism popularized this doctrine, especially when arguing with Catholicism over the universal visible church. And the universal visible church is just as implausible as universal invisible church. So what the scriptures support is a local visible church. And as we've noted, that in more than 95% of the usages of ecclesia in the New Testament, it refers to a church in a particular place. In no place of the New Testament is there any explanation of a change of this common usage for Greek-speaking people. Jesus said, I will build my church. The meaning of that is I will build my assembly. I will gather my people together. I will commission them to do my work. I will protect them from the forces of evil defeating them. Well, one last observation before we finish. There are true Christians all over the world. There is no denying that these many, many, many thousands and millions of people are the people of God who have been washed. They've been been washed in the blood of the Lamb. They're saved. And there is not one word that I've said today that denies this. But what I have shown you today is there is no warrant for calling them the church. Because that's not the way that the New Testament uses the word. Now, we could give them another meaning to describe them if we wanted to, if that kind of helps us understand what we're talking about. But we can't call unassembled Christians the church. Not if we want to keep with the New Testament usage of ecclesia. And we shouldn't confuse the meanings because the church is harmed by this. The church is pulled apart by it. It can destroy the significance of ordinances and of fellowship and leadership. None of those things is present in an invisible church. And all of you, all of you are certainly aware of this, that I couldn't have preached this at a better time. You are all aware of this, that where there is no assembly, Christians suffer. Where we can't go to church, Christians suffer. A year without assembling leaves people with cold hearts in discouragement and in depression. We feel alone. And that's because we've lost this vital part of our communion with Christ and fellowship with his people. We must assemble. And the Lord knows this. And he promised that the Holy Spirit would be with us in a very, very special way when we assemble as his people. This is the place where we grow in the Lord. This is where we are sanctified. There is no benefit to a universal, invisible church. How much did that help you in the last year and a half? What did that do for you? Show me the benefit of it. I can't think of one. So I'm going to leave you with a brief quote from, again, from Buell Kazee in his book, The Church and the Ordinances. And this is just a small part of the extended, valuable analysis of universal invisible church theory. But I'll quote from two parts of his entire quote. About the universal invisible church, this is what he writes. The concept lends itself to abuse and subtle deception. This view of the church has no real practical value. It is admittedly popular and for the undiscerning seems to solve many problems about the church, but it has the result of releasing people from the practical responsibilities of life as a believer. Multitudes who believe in the universal invisible church concept relax 
from the particular responsibilities as believers. In their mind, there is no church to oversee them, exhort them, point out their needs, or provoke them to industry. They are in the big church of their imagination. Why worry about attending visible churches or whether or not these churches are preaching the truth? Somebody will carry on. In fact, the church itself will somehow carry the gospel to the ends of the earth. The inventors of the so-called universal invisible church concept provide a dream church where the believer can escape the conflict found in the local church and yet enjoy the complacent comfort of feeling that he's in a higher spiritual relationship with God. And this way the church concept becomes a great offense against the churches of Christ. I wish I could read all of that. It's all so good. Universal Invisible church theory is counterintuitive to the New Testament ideal of a body of Christ. So what is it that Christ wants from us? Why this? Why an assembly? Why why do we gather? Well, he wants us actively involved. He wants us actively involved in an assembly of Christians that are carrying out his work of preaching and baptizing, of teaching everything the New Testament commanded. And this is the reason that we, we preach about church doctrine. The Lord's commands to accomplish His purposes are far better than our imagination of how it should be done. He's given us the plan and program for how it should be done. It is His church, an organized body of baptized believers that come together, assemble together to carry out the work of the Lord. This, folks, is the body of Christ. This is it. This is the church. And it's God's plan and program for His people. I hope that you understand it this way. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we come to you today thanking you for the truth of your word. We, we understand that we cut against the grain of modern doctrine. As we said in the beginning, most people just accept this without investigating scriptures to find out if it's true. Uh, this other theory of the church, but we can see from the multitudes and multitudes of uses in your word that we must accede to the truth of a local visible body of believers. And if in some way that we should say, oh yes, well there there is this other theory for the church that we should gladly accept, if we even thought that way, we would never be able to escape What you have taught in your New Testament about the local visible body of believers that must meet to carry out all the works that you've given us to do. It can't be done in other ways. Lord, we we just pray that you would bless your people, strengthen us in your word today. We, We just thank you for your mercy and grace and all that you do for us. Help us today to realize the truth of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Brian Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roner Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.